Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Ilona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. And I would love to hear the comments. Why? Because that will teach me to grow and will help me better what I do. Because I can promise you, when Lisa, Suckling, Dunnock, uh, Virginie Boone at the Wine Enthusiast, Galoni, uh, all these guys, right? Uh, Mullinsworth at the Wine Spec, whoever it is that you, you, you read, I can, I can promise you there's always something to learn from these notes. And so you can be a stubborn man and say, oh, they're completely wrong, that's stupid, sure. Or you can be like, okay, I'm going to sit as the maker or the producer or the consulting winemaker and I'm going to analyze these notes, these ratings, these description, and I'm going to actually learn from it. Because there's always something you can describe in any comment, even yours, ladies and gentlemen. Your comment about the wine is going to teach me about what I do and help me progress and get better. It's as simple as that. So you guys have just, just heard literally in real time some legendary humility. Again, think of it in the context of a person that dedicated many decades to this craft and on a daily basis, I know some of us get up at 5 a.m. to do the exercise that you described to us in order to really um, embrace fully all the opportunity of the day, those 50 wines and walking the vineyard and stuff. It's hard work. We talk about the romance of it, but this is a palatal workout like there's no tomorrow. And then being subject to critical opinion, and I'm sure that's not a lot of fun, not knowing once you let the swines go, how the world is going to accept them, and not just critics, but consumers as well. And at the same time, to maintain this level of humility is pretty freaking extraordinary. So you guys that have heard or yourself think that Napa Valley, for example, is elitist, which is an opinion that somehow floats a whole lot in the circles, yes, there's in the latest side of it. But here in front of you is the person that has his ego in check completely um, and that really is a people's winemaker. Listen to the range. Anything from Tubac Chuck, which is very accessible wine, all the way to multi-hundred dollar wines that I'm sure he agonizes over and we'll talk about it in a minute. Um, but the fact that there's such incredible level of acceptance and appreciation for the entire spectrum of the wine world is really instructive. So bravo to you for that. Um, but since we have you here, the palette <laughs> in front of us, we have to explore and I'm dying for you to take us on the journey from barrel to bottle. I think a lot of people that visit Napa Valley, um, really value the opportunity to barrel taste. It's not necessarily with a winemaker most times, it's usually with somebody that guides them on a tour, but it's an essential component of a full-on tasting experience. I find barrel tastings to be somewhat intimidating because it's hard for me to recognize in a young wine, where is it going? And you made a comment earlier that spoke to that. You said that there's this ever-changing, almost mutating, like, chameleonic personality that happens in barrels. So you don't focus on it as much. I want you to tell us 
what the barrel tasting component is like, and then we'll move on to the bottle and the finished product. The, 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 you, can, you, can, you should actually bring it all the way back to its true origin. Okay. You should start the tasting in the vineyard. Of course. And, and because if you actually push that further is how can you recognize on a grape the wine that is going to create? You focus on certain things, thickness of skin, how tannic it is, how when you spit the juice out, the extraction goes out, uh, uh, how aromatic, you already know this. When it's, it's made during fermentation, you kind of fashion the personality of the wine. And then it ends up in the barrel. And in, in the barrel, what do you look for? Well, it's just like a child. Imagine, I don't know, my 12-year-old Alex, uh, you know, this is a good example. Or my 16-year-old Arthur is a little bit further down the line and maybe already in the bottle. But but if you take my 12-year-old, uh, you know, it's, it's how do I describe this personality? How do I know what he's going to be uh, when he's 45 with the family and, 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 and the job? Uh, well, you look at, at, at the basic ingredients that compose his, his personality. In this case, he's a creative guy, full of energy, very giving, extremely laughing, happy boy. Uh, well, the wine in the barrel should be the same. You focus on aromatics. Is there a lot of aromas? Is there acidity? Is there a lot of tannins? How are these tannins? Are they aggressive and, and, and not very pleasant? Are they silky and soft and round? And, and by doing that, you can already describe what a wine is. And so when you go at a winery and you're taken to a barrel, you know, the first thing you, you ask is the varietal. And so by the varietal, you're going to be told what type of profile. If it's a Pinot Noir, it's going to be a little bit lighter, a little bit more red fruit driven, a little bit less tannin. If it's a Cabernet Sauvignon, you'll see a little bit more power, much more tannin, right? Tannins are that drying impression. Tannins are found in the seed or the skin of the, of the berry themselves. Uh, and you can extract more or less of them. And when you actually cut and people give you that glass from the barrel, there's really an important factor to, to mention. You start having a sense of belonging. You start a sense of ownership that you tasted that product at a very early stage. And so you are feeling like you're going to be part of the life of that wine. Just the same way when you buy a bottle of wine and sell it, that wine becomes a reflection of your life and your experience of and through life until you drink it. And so when you're at a barrel and you taste, first, the nose. Does it smell good? Does it smell fruity? Does it smell fresh? Or if you don't want to push it there because you don't feel capable of that, because you're not trained, does your mind and heart say, ah, or does it say, Ugh? simple as that? It's a pure feeling. And the same in the mouth here. Is it big and harsh and uh, or is it soft and integrated and layered and complex and, and dense and you're like, hmm. It's not more than that. People should not put too much pressure on themselves. Try to smell. You know, there's plenty of wine. Even tasting that many wines I just described per year. There's plenty of wine that I taste where I go on the note or people like these beautiful writers and, 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 and reading people uh, that, that taste as, uh, you know, even more wine than me and more, more diverse than me. When they go and they say, this, the nose is closed. That means what? The wine is just not expressing itself. Just like you and I on a bad day, 
We don't want to talk. We're more closed down on ourselves. We're either sad or protect ourselves. Wines go through these phases right after bottling. It's called bottle shock. You know, these wines have these type of phases. So if you smell and you don't smell anything, the wine might just be closed. And it's not you not tasting right. The wine's closed. There's plenty of time when I taste wine, blend wine, where I say, nose is closed. That means that the wine is just not because of the moon, because of the phase of the wine, because of what was just done to the wine. So don't, don't say it absolutely confidently and relaxed, saying that the wine is closed on the nose. And then on the palate, the wine could be at a phase where it's aggressive, just like us. We have bad days, right? We're moody sometimes, we're, we're tired sometimes, we're pissed off sometimes. The wine has these phases too. It's a living creature. It changes all the time. You know, the variation of a wine it becomes smaller as it ages, I think. Uh, you know, the longer it goes in, in, in time, the older the wine is, the more it goes through these up and downs of, 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 of expression, right? just like humans. We learn through life, through experiences, that we don't let outside things vary ourselves too much, influence ourselves too much, have an impact on us because we put relativity. We kind of take everything with a grain of salt. Wine are the same way. At the beginning of the age, they could be in so many different different ways that, that you, you can, there as well, feel completely free to expect. I'm feeling that one little tannic. I'm feeling that wine a little pissed off, or I feel that wine extremely seductive, or I feel this wine like a one-night stand, or I feel this wine as a as a full, amazing expression of, 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 of joy. That's absolutely fine to say. Nobody can define that but you. Wow. Um, there's a lot to unpack here. I love your descriptors. Pissed off, seductive. I mean, if we completely took the word wine out of this conversation this is entirely applicable to any human. And I love how the life cycle of wine, you know, physically, but also the palatal properties emulate human experience. What other beverage does that? Not, not, not a lot that I drink, but there's some, you know, I'll give you a very stupid, out of lack of, again, culture, or, or knowledge on my side. I, I, I was never into sake. And, and, and you know, and, and, and honestly, I, I thought sake was kind of a distilled alcohol with very little, uh, you know, uh, variation. And one day I went to Japan and I decided to crack a bottle of $350 of sake. And I started learning and reading a little bit more. And my friend Eduardo helped me understand a little bit of sake as well. You guys, you know, should follow him because he's, he's a genius in that as well. And I saw and tried to understand what was behind sake from the quality of the water to everything, the, everything that they put into, into uh, the, the people that make it, their knowledge, their accumulation of tradition, the, 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 the raw material that they use. And, and you, you suddenly discover these completely wide variation of, 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 of expression, of making, of, of aromatic profile. But again, I knew nothing. I'm not better than anybody of you. But when I drank that sake in Japan, okay, I was in Japan, in Kyoto of all people, other places, not, not, not bad place to be uh, 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 for two days of vacation before business. And, 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 
it reveals so many beautiful flower notes, so much subtle aromatics that it made me happy. And I discovered the, a beverage, but I discovered a lot of different things. I grow my own eggs, eggs, depending on when they're picked, the season, what the chicken eats and stuff like that, have variation. It's just, I think, a question of us not being able in a very complex world to always pay attention to things around us. So of course, the wine world is a small world compared to the rest of the world, but it is a product that really affects a lot of people and has a very wide range of diversity because of grapes, rootstocks, clones, climate, soils, people making it, and so on and so on. So of course, there's a really wide range. But I would, you know, I would push people to look at diversity in everything. And, and you asked at the beginning, how was that first aromatic experience? There's plenty. You can, you can train by taking little jars of jam without looking what it is and smell it and taste it. You'll see that you'll learn about fruits like that. You can open yogurts without looking what it is and, and, and use it. You can, you can smell flowers. Uh, now there's great apps. I do it. You know, I do it my, myself. I go in, in, in my garden the other day and, 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 and I'm like, what the hell is that flower that has these honey-like flavors and, and that is so fragrant that is popping in the middle of, of beginning of spring and, and absolutely stunning and stuff like that. There's apps that show you what it is. And, 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 and it's called the Mexican tarragon. I don't know, you know, and, 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 and guess what? I, I, I just took the time to, to see and to learn because of my job. But, but there's plenty of senses uh, that, that we can use and, and not forget to use it. But, but I think, yeah, wine has probably one of the greatest diversity and therefore we have endless possibilities. Wow. So if you guys didn't catch it, I'll just highlight the teachable moment or the Yoda moment, as I call them expand your mind. In other words, give yourself an opportunity to actually experience it, just exactly how Jean described it. You have to, first of all, we all don't know what we don't know. So let's start with that premise. And then the rest of it is discovery part. It's the fun part. And if Jean can go to the garden and get surprised, and guess what? The rest of us can figure out how to, it's surround us. You know, even at a grocery store, start smelling. Just, you will have so much fun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Start, go, go in the produce, produce lineup for fruit and vegetable and just try saying. The, the other thing that I would give you guys that I can promise you most people don't do anymore. Before your food reaches your mouth, smell it. There you go. How simple is that? Very simple. That's awesome. So again, this is your homework. Don't fail us. I want you to start smelling before tasting. Um, so back to the um, vineyard in the cellar for a moment. Um, what I heard you say is that you, the wine personality is starting to develop in the vineyard. So when you guys hear the phrase that's quite ubiquitous, wine is grown in the vineyard, maybe we can think of it as the like a child, like this very small child that Jean was referencing. He's using an example of his adorable son, Benjamin. But you can kind of start seeing, like when you look at the baby, right, and the stroller, you can kind of see where the personality is going, right, a little bit. So this is not dissimilar to that. Uh, when you're in the vineyard and you're tasting, it's like, ah, oh, okay. 
And that's how you also differentiate. Like this particular group of vines, a block of vines, is behaving this way. But then you walk a row over and all of a sudden, hey, you're saying something different. It's just like no two people are alike. Probably not two vines are alike. But there's some differentiation that happens at that level, right? And then the wine winds up being harvested, excuse me, the grapes, the fruit, and then it winds up in a barrel. And then do you at this point kind of validate your first impression? Does it surprise you? What happens? It's going gonna, it's gonna to be really strange to you, but I tend to forget. And I f kind of almost consciously forget. Oh. Uh, I think there's certain conclusion that you can take and make but the past cannot be reached. So I think it's better to look into the future. So I really tend to focus my decisions on either the present or the future and not go back to the past. I have one wonderful thing that is called, uh, what I, that I nicknamed the Bible, uh, which is my book that I take my notes uh, of, of every vintage. I tend to have it actually here. This is a this is the, the Bible volume three, as you can actually. Oh my goodness. You guys uh, can't see it on the radio, but this is quite a sizable tome. And, 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 and it's the third, the third, and I take notes in it of everything I do per vintage uh, uh, to have it in writing because I always review it before the previous vintage to ensure I can not forget how to adapt to the current year. But outside of that, I focus on the wine the way it is because I can tell you something. If you have a great want grapes um, in your backyard, Luna, for example, and, and, and that grapes is, is about to be picked and I go and I taste it and I see certain things. But then a month later, in the middle of fermentation, at the end of, of, of maybe maceration or whatever, a month later, you know, towards, towards completion of fermentation, the wine tastes another way. I can't change it. So I need to learn and understand in my mind, okay, let's link the two together. Is there consequences? And then erase and focus on what I can do better today and in the future. Hmm. And, and so, so it's always, always a quick analysis of what I can see any mistakes in the back, but it's mainly the present, the future. Wow. So when you start tasting in a barrel, and at this point you describe basically a blank slate, you're not necessarily stringing those memories of what you tasted. No. But when the wine shows up, is it kind of an instantaneous, almost gut level uh, reaction to what it is or what it isn't for that matter? Yeah, it is. It, it, it is. And, and I think, again, you said, how do you react to bad wines? Uh, I react the same way in a barrel than in a bottle. If it's a bad wine, I'm going to learn from it. And then I'm going to maybe look a little bit back and, and ask myself what could have done better or what are the, the chances that, that we can, you know, change certain practices to do that. But the most important is almost analyzing the past, but it's also turning to, okay, today I have this. How can I tweak that and what tools do I have in my toolbox to modify the direction of that wine. And I'm going to tell you something, because blending is a key component of that. I think the ability that people give me the most uh, today when I hear clients and people talk is my ability to read a wine profile and to understand how it works to click with another. Well, with blending, you can make two mediocre wine be really good if you understand their personalities, right? Yeah. 
It's really, really a very good safety net down the line to be able to make a really good wines on sometimes certain lots that did not perform the way you wanted. And so I, I, I kind of always look at the present, the future. So you described something that really caught my attention earlier vis-a-vis -vis barrel tasting or actually wine tasting in general, but you described that attachment. Does it speak to you? So as a consumer walking into a wine cellar, which is a little intimidating for most, and having somebody, you know, use a thief and pour some wine in your glass and you're kind of feeling the pressure, you're supposed to figure out what is it that you're smelling and tasting? What is it that you should be looking for? Meaning, is it that emotional attachment? And does it carry through? Could you make a case that if you smelled and taste the wine that's, you know, two or three years from release, for example, should you feel confident that your attraction will stay? Yes, for sure. For sure, because if you don't have, so there's three major components in the wine that you kind of general rules. Uh, first, the more you age a wine, usually the more fruitiness and freshness of aroma disappear. Uh, the second rule is, Ageability in the wine is made out of three components, tannins, alcohol, and acidity. Uh, uh, tannins, if they're granular and, 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 and dense, but, but ripe, meaning more granular than angular and sharp, usually the wine will age well. Second, if you have freshness, it will carry the wine longer. Uh, and alcohol is usually a component to hold that together. Uh, so I think if you follow that advice, then it is about your impression. But I always tend to buy many examples of bottles so I can actually measure the evolution of a wine through time. Uh, because you can predict it to, to some you know, precision and you can understand how the wine will age. But precisely, you can't. And I think that it is really, really great to be able, just like humans, your children, to be able to to measure the evolution and then consume when it's at its peak to your liking or when the wine fits the mood you're in. I love that word, mood. So it's reasonable to expect that even when you are, you know, briefly, because, you know, it's not a long exercise when you're barrel tasting, you have some in your glass, usually you, you know, smell, swirl, spit it out and such like that. If you feel an enormous amount of attachment to this wine, it's reasonable to expect that you love it when it's bottled, right? Yeah, it is. So give yourself that same permission that we talked about. Just really relate to it. Do you love it or not? And that will inform potentially your purchasing decisions. But it's that first impression. You gotta love it, right? Yeah, for sure. So um, from barrel to cellar, you nurture this wine for a number of months or years, sometimes as long as what, 48 months is the longest aging? Typically yeah, for, 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 for me, it's 30, 36. 36, which is still quite a bit. So let's think about the economics for a moment. There's so much effort and energy and money that went into it. And then you basically sit in the inventory for 36 months. There's gotta be a really good reason why that's happening. You know, you really want to maximize this wine's potential. Is not true. Yeah, of course, because because 
You measure through the aging the benefit that the vessel that it is aging in is giving to the one. If it's in barrel uh, air, uh, uh, you know, and softening the wine, if it's in tank, uh, getting rid of some of these dissolved oxygen or, or making the wine a little bit fresher, there's a couple of tools in winemaking that we use uh, during that time to kind of direct where the wine needs to go to maximize its own potential. Excellent. So when do you decide is that perfect moment to bottle it? When it goes to bottle? When the wine has, for me, when the wine has its widest range of aromatic and structure textual expressions. Pretty much when the wine makes you the most happy, when the wine is the most balanced, when the wine is the most integrated, when the wine is the wiser, when the wine is, and, and you see that, okay, now I've given that wine wood components, air, structure, mouthfeel, it's ready to go. And then it's like letting you child go into, into life, into college. You can't control it anymore. It's in the bottle. It's for the other people to judge it. And, and, and just like your child, when, when he leaves the nest, you know, he's going to have to make his own decisions and some of them are going to be good and some others are not. And you hope that he'll do the best that he can and, and that he'll be safe. And, and wine is exactly the same thing. There's that human element I love so much. So taking a step back, we, you kind of answered a lot of questions that I had about the blending trials. Clearly, it's very methodical. Uh, there's that sameness to the protocol that you use. But you taste with different, because um, you're a consulting winemaker, um, you taste with a lot of other winemakers, not just you, right? And sometimes there's other people, seller workers, right, that are engaged in that. So describe that kind of collaborative process. What does it look like? Well, usually a, a blending session is, is, let's say, for our sakes, 100 samples. Uh, uh, we go through the 100 samples. There's not a, a noise in the room because everybody kind of takes notes of the 100 samples that we taste. And then I usually propose uh, certain blends based on what we need to blend, what wine we need to come up with. And I just tell them, okay, take two barrels of this lot, three barrels of that lot, four barrels of this lot, one barrel of that lot. And I measure these different type of personality and what they bring to the equation. We take a pipette and kind of do a micro blend, kind of a, a thick blend from the bottles and we taste it. And, and, and then we discuss Okay, do we have enough? Do we not? And, 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 and input is always welcome, obviously. Uh, are we missing something? And then we see if we can readjust it, injecting other components, other expression that we're missing. And we do that until satisfaction of, of, of the people. So is there always a consensus or do you um, see things differently frequently? Yeah, there's, there's, there's differences sometimes in people, but you know, the more you, you grow your career, the more by consulting for so many wines in so many different places, my experience becomes exponential. Uh, 
So, 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 because normally it's not, it follows a vegetative cycle, it's one shot per year. By taste, tasting so many different wines and be exposed to so many, I, I, I build up that library, that experience uh, that much faster. And, and, and therefore, I usually come up with a solution uh, uh, that, that is what it is. And, and then when it is discussed, when it is criticized, it's usually just to tweak it, just to change a little bit, the uh, components, because uh, because sometimes I come up with blends and I, the blend doesn't show up the way I want it. So often I do it myself, like yesterday with, with, with Tolosa, there's multiple blends I made where I'm like, yeah, I'm not happy, so I'm going to tweak this and add more of that and less of this and stuff like that. So it's really kind of like fashioning something before you 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 release it, and and yeah, there's there's a lot of, of discussion and, and and involvement from 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 people, but but it's usually uh, uh, in an open way and and always within a perception or a goal to improve the final product. I love that mindset that at any level, any price point. Um, really in any circumstances, whether it's a really successful vintage or a more challenging one, you strive for this ultimate representation in the bottle. I, I think it's such an important insurance policy for the consumer because they're not going through all this machinations and all the pain points. Um, they're just looking at the final result and the fact that you are so mindful of what they're drinking is fantastic. You taste and blend with the world's, the foremost expert, Michelle Roland, a highly sought after consultant for many, many cult wineries around the world. Your friends, in fact, you make wine with him in Napa Valley. Yeah, we have a brand uh, that, that we started in 2010 because we went to Marimoto together. And I looked at him and I said, let's start a brand. And he says, we already work together. And I, I said, let's <laughs> Let's make wine together. And he looked and he said, but we already do. There's a bunch of projects where we work together. And I says, no, 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 wine that I will be able to remember when you're too old to work. And, uh, and he laughed and said, okay, let's do it. And we decided to call it by his name because he has such a great reputation. And, and that's how it started. And it's for me nothing more than an ability to place a memory and a friendship into a bottle. So later in life, and I don't gain anything out of it. I don't get paid for it. It is strictly my way to have a bottle that when nostalgia will be, nostalgia will be in my mind, that I could just go pick up one of the bottles and remember all the good times and all the good things we have together. That is such a heartwarming story right there. It makes me want to taste this wine, and I have, and it's phenomenal. But if you guys haven't heard loud and clear what it's about. It's based upon friendship and that emotional attachment that you feel towards each other as colleagues, as peers, as thinkers. And to have that bottled, I don't know what else could be more interesting. It's great and it's especially great to do it with a guy like him that has that type of expertise and, 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 and you know, I call him the doubter. Uh, that's how I always nickname him because when we work on things together, uh, he's not here all, all, all year long, but he comes in and he doubts what I do. He kind of pushes me to, to, to even further and can really kind of, 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 of finalize certain things and be more precise, even greater in details at, 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 at 
Jamie Dow, uh, who worked with me for a long time, says he's he's the only guy that takes you to these levels of conversation. Uh, you know that, that where where you guys are really kind of going so finely into details that that it's it's really uh, intellectually challenging, and, and it's really it's very true. So there you go, guys. Uh, Jean just described a highly sophisticated process of mental calisthenics and all the details, minute details that you go through, but intellectual stimulation is um, one of the things that I value the most, and I know some of us live and die by cerebral activity. Having said that, there's quite a bit of emotion involved. So just to conclude what we've learned here today, one thing that stands out to me the most, there's clearly an artistry but there's also a lot of science and intellectual activity in winemaking. And it's a really broad spectrum. And some people cover the range. And you have surrounded yourself by people that are interesting and stimulating and challenge you. I know you love challenge. And you also challenge yourself every day. And that's kind of what I want to see in my winemaker. The wines that I drink personally often are the wines that I find um, stimulating in some way. And it could be purely hedonic and pleasurable, or it could be kind of difficult to get to know and stubborn. But I like wines with personality. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine that any wine that um, comes from your hands, from your experience, uh, is less than that. There's always a level of stimulation across the board. So we're fortunate to have you, Jean. Um, you guys need to really get to know not just a single brand or two brands perhaps that you've been purchasing or participating in some way. You really need to know the range because it is so much fun. It's one of the best things for a wine aficionado or just a wine curious person to participate in because you can make out of it whatever you want. This entire time, what Jean was really saying to you is find yourself in the wine, find your own path, find your own pleasure, your joy, your frustration. When you meet the wine face to face, there's something to be discovered as so special and so personable. Don't deprive yourself. Thank you very much for being with us today. I thoroughly enjoyed this. And I hope to see you again soon. See you very soon. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Palette Exposure featuring Alona Thompson. We'll see you again next week.